Amen. Good morning, everybody. That's good to see you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? Good. Hebrews chapter 4 is where you need to go. Hebrews chapter 4. Last week, we stepped back a little bit from this uh, section of warning in Hebrews uh, to spend a little time clarifying particulars of the vocabulary of this great salvation. I told you last week that precision is important when we talk about the gospel and that many of our misunderstandings, many of our misapplications can be corrected if we are precise in our understanding of and articulation of the gospel. So I showed you this graphic last week. This is kind of what we use to walk through this umbrella picture of salvation. There are a few things that I want to remind you about that I want to reemphasize this week as we move forward. Number one, the order of things here is of utmost importance. We do not start just anywhere we want in this process. It's not as if we enter into salvation at the point of sanctification. It's not as if we come into this by our working. The order is important. It starts with conversion, leads to sanctification, and then to glorification. Number two, each specific part is absolutely essential. We cannot leave parts of this out. If we leave out any single part of this great salvation, we lose the whole of it. In other words, we cannot say, I like conversion, regeneration and justification, adoption, those ideas, they appeal to me, and I like glorification, the hope of heaven and eternity in God's presence, I like that. Not so crazy about sanctification, so I'm just going to leave that aside. This is not uh, Burger King where you can make it your own way, right? Is that Burger King still? Salvation doesn't work like that. Uh, All of these parts are absolutely crucial. Number three, I want to remind you that no one is lost in this process. No one is lost in this process. We could go back to Romans chapter 8 and talk about this in more detail. We did that about a year ago. But in Romans chapter 8 we learn that all who are justified will also be glorified. There, there are not some who are justified and then drop off at sanctification and fail to be glorified. Rather, those people were never justified in the first place. So no one is lost in this process. No one starts truly legitimately in this process and is lost somewhere along the way. But there are many, there are many who think they're in it and are not at all. And it is demonstrated as they live their life and demonstrate their unbelief. So no one is lost in the process. And the fourth thing I want to remind you about when we talk about this general overview is that different passages of scripture will emphasize different parts of this. In fact, there are some authors of Scripture who will emphasize different parts of it more regularly. In fact, Paul would seem to be, uh, have his utmost concern in the arena of conversion, of regeneration and justification. Whereas James, brother of Jesus, seems to be talking mostly in his letter about sanctification. And so uh, we will see that different parts of Scripture emphasize different portions of this great salvation, um, but always we take the whole of Scripture to teach us about all of it, okay? So we don't want to forget those things as we move back into the text of Hebrews today in chapter 4, back to the warning that is issued here. I will say this, you may be tired of the tone at this point, you may be tired of the repeated, redundant warning that happens here in Hebrews, and I understand that. It does seem repetitive, and it is repetitive. But it is repetitive for a purpose. We do this with things that are important, and this is important. In fact, I would argue that there is nothing more important than this. More important than than that we are certain that we are part of the family of God. And that we are confident that we will go to be with Him when this life ends. There's nothing more important than that. And so to take a month of in-your-face warning, of harsh tone, so that we're certain of this, is time well spent. right? So don't check out, this is for you today. We need to pay close attention. A scholar, N.T. Wright, said, Again, the writer is insisting, this warning isn't for the person standing next to you, it's for you. And then he adds this, yes, you. (laughs) This warning is for me. Yes, me. And it is also for you. George Guthrie says it like this. I think this is on the screen because it's a little bit longer. He says, don't take this warning too lightly. It's addressed to all believers. 
There was a whole generation of people who certainly looked like believers on the surface, but they did not enter the promised rest. It's so easy to think of others who qualify as having hard hearts, but the author is pointing his finger at you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I think he's right. And that's the way we want to hear this text today. Yet another scholar says, we see in the various sections here that started back in chapter 3, verse 7, that the author reiterates the main theme repeatedly, stating it from different angles so that the readers grasp what he is saying and are impressed with the gravity of the situation. That's what we want to happen today. We want to be impressed by the gravity of all of this. We sang just a minute ago something that I think is a little bit dangerous. We sang this song and repeated several times, Holy Spirit... You are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. And that may seem on the surface like, like, a, like a simple little thing that will make us feel happy. And it will give us all this comfort and encouragement. And indeed, that is part of what the Holy Spirit does. He brings comfort to us. He brings encouragement to us. He helps us in our time of need. But when we invite the Holy Spirit into a place, He has more jobs than just that. He also convicts us of our sin. He also confronts us with unrighteousness. He also deals with our hearts like a surgeon. And so when you invite the Holy Spirit into a place, when you invite, Holy Spirit, fill this atmosphere, you need to be ready for Him not to come with with a gentle petting. He may come with a hammer to your heart. Either way, it's good. Either way, we should welcome it and we should want it. But I'm just saying be ready for it today. Be ready for it today. The Holy Spirit doesn't always just come and make our hearts feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. Sometimes He breaks our hearts completely for the purpose of restoring us and bringing us back to where we need to be. So let's read the text together. uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 today. God's Word says, Therefore, let us fear. If while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had the good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as had been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest... He would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. God, we come before you today and we pray that you will help us to hear this warning. That the Holy Spirit will give us all ears to hear it. That the Holy Spirit will give us all hearts to receive it for ourselves. And not only to seek the application of this text for our neighbor, but for ourselves. God, we pray that you'll give us ears to hear today. And we pray that you will help us to feel the weight of all of this. We invite the Holy Spirit to teach us that this is not fun and games. That this is life and death. Eternal life and eternal death. Help us feel the weight of this and help us engage it properly. God, we pray that you will do this for our good, certainly, but ultimately for your own glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you look at it in chapter 4, verse 1, you'll notice once again the author starts out with therefore. And, and not, to, not to just keep repeating this to you, but I want you to see it, that this, what we'll look at today, is connected to what we've been looking at. He's not shifting gears. He's not starting some new train of thought, some new subject, some new topic. He is absolutely drawing out implications of what he has already said. And we want to see that, that this way. It's connected to what we saw last week. Then notice he says, therefore, let us fear. 
That is the first imperative of the passage today. There are two of them. First one, first command comes right here. Let us fear. And I want us today to take that very seriously. I want us to hear that and feel the weight of it. Take it very seriously. And the first way we can take it very seriously is not to try to dumb it down like some translations do. In fact, there's one very popular translation that takes that word fear and changes it to be careful. Let's be careful. That's not what's going on in this text. It doesn't say to be careful. The word in the Greek is phobeomai, and that's the word we get our English word phobia from. That word means fear. Nothing less than fear is going on there. In fact, if we know someone who has arachnophobia, is that person careful about spiders? No, that person has a fear of spiders, right? We don't want to dumb this word down and and, and somehow skirt our way around it by just saying, let's be careful. Let's be careful not to fall short of the promised rest. The word there is fear, and I want us to take that seriously today. Let us fear, lest any of you may seem to have come short of it. Another way we can take it seriously is not to try to make the main application today, oh, Christians, you don't really need to be afraid. You you don't really need to be afraid. If you're really a Christian, you don't need to be afraid. I think we do that a lot of times with the scriptures. We come to a command or we come to a warning and we say, well, what... We come to a command, maybe maybe a command that says, do not commit adultery. And we come to it, and rather than emphasizing that point that we must not commit adultery, that if we're going to honor God, we will not commit adultery, not only with our bodies, but even with our minds. If we want to honor God, that's the way we'll live. Instead of making that application as the primary application, a lot of times we say, do not commit adultery. But if you do, if you do, God will forgive you. And that is true. That is true. But when we come to the warnings, we need to preach the warning. And when we come to the command, we need to preach the command as the primary application. And we're going to do that today. So the text says, let us fear. Therefore, let us fear. That's the primary application that we will make today. One scholar says this verb, let us fear, is a first person plural. Showing that the author includes himself in the admonition. The warning is not restricted to so-called weak Christians. But it is addressed to all Christians everywhere. Therefore, all Christians everywhere, let us fear. Let us fear. Well, what do we fear? What are we to fear? If the author is telling us to fear, if God is telling us to fear, what is it that we must fear? Well, read on. He says, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. What we should fear is coming short of the promised rest. We should fear not going to heaven, essentially. But that's really the outcome that we should fear. It's really the outcome that we should fear would be missing out on heaven. Maybe a good question is what would lead to such an outcome? Because if we can determine what would lead to such an outcome, what would lead us to miss out on the eternal rest that God has promised for his people, if we can determine what would cause us to miss out on that, then it's that thing that we should ultimately be afraid of. And I think we learn what that thing is in chapter 3, verse 19. Look at it. Just a verse before what we're talking about here. God says in his word, So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So ultimately, what should we fear? Unbelief. Because unbelief would cause us not to enter the promised rest that God has for us. And so ultimately, we should fear unbelief. John Piper nails it when he says it that way. He says, fear that unbelief. Because that's what will keep you from entering God's rest. God's haven of salvation. God's heaven even. He says, fear unbelief. Fear not trusting God. Fear no faith. Fear having no faith. Fear saying in your heart, I believed a long time ago, but not so much anymore. If that's where you're at today, fear. Fear that unbelief that will keep you from glory. So what do we have to fear? We have to fear unbelief, ultimately. I think there are three other things that we see in this verse. Number one, it affirms what we talked about last week. When we said that sanctification is the evidence and the proof of conversion or justification. Notice the language here. He says, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering that rest, any one of you may seem 
to have come short of it. Seems like, to me, he's talking there about may seem in the present tense. Like that's something that is discernible and observable in your life right now. But he says, fear uh, that it may seem to have come short of it. That any one of you may have may seem to have come short of it. In other words, what's going on in your life right now may be the evidence or the proof of what happened in your life early on. So it's not so much a change in status that he's talking about here. He's talking about a revelation of true status. It may seem that you have come short. You have come short of what God has for you. So this present tense life that we're living is evidence and proof of what has happened in the past in conversion. Either it's real or it's not real, and that is demonstrated in the way we live our everyday life. That's number one. Number two, this verse hints at a hope of promised rest. In the midst of this in-your-face warning that we have been in for a month now, in the midst of this let us fear, Here, toward the end of the section, he's going to start sprinkling in more and more hope. In fact, three different times in the text we're looking at today, he mentions the hope of promised rest for the people of God. He's going to hold it out there that in the midst of this in-your-face warning, there is real hope for real rest for the people who truly belong to God. And we want to remember that. And we want to see in Scripture that warnings and promises often go hand in hand. And if you don't believe me on this, you should read the Old Testament, specifically the covenant that God makes with His people under Moses. He gives them great promises. Promises of a land, promises of a great nation, promises ultimately of a Messiah who would come to rescue and deliver. But He also gives them warnings. Warnings about what it will be like if they are not faithful to Him. We love to talk about the promises of Scripture. And oftentimes we just skip right over the warnings. And what we see over and over again is that they really go together. Promises and warnings go together. And we see that in this text. That's the second thing. Second other thing we want to see. Not only is he teaching us to fear unbelief. He's teaching us that our present lifestyle is indicative uh, and and, uh, revealing of our conversion or lack of conversion. He's teaching us about a real hope for future rest. And then we want to talk a little bit about that rest before we move on. What kind of rest is he talking about? Well, as I studied that this week, I found that there were some scholars who say that the rest that the author is mentioning here is only future rest. It's exclusively eschatological rest or glorification. Basically, basically, these scholars say that the kind of rest that the author is talking about here is heavenly rest. Don't talk about any kind of rest here on the earth. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about future rest in heaven. And then there's another set of scholars that say he's not talking about heaven at all here in this text. He's talking only exclusively about the rest that we experience when we come to God in faith, not by work, but by faith, and we trust in him for our salvation. Some scholars say he's talking exclusively here about conversion rest, justification rest, regeneration rest. And as I read these arguments, I thought, you guys are both making fantastic biblical arguments. And so at the end of the day, I think the answer to the question is, is the rest here a future rest or a present rest? The answer has to be yes. It is both of those things. Because that's the way it works with this great salvation. There is a future component of our salvation that has not yet been realized in our lives, right? We have a lot to look forward to as believers in Christ, do we not? But is that to say that there is nothing good that we experience here and now? Absolutely not. We live an abundant life here and now. So the rest is both a present tense rest and a future tense rest. It is something that we experience now, really, but not fully. It's something we experience now already, but not yet as we will. And that's a tension, that already not yet tension, runs throughout the scriptures. Specifically in Hebrews. Specifically when we talk about the gospel. That already not yet tension is everywhere. All right, so in verse 1, we learn that what we should fear and we should really fear is unbelief because it is that unbelief that would keep us from entering the rest. Look at verse 2. He says, For 
And so he's building some foundation here to what he just said. The command he just gave us, he's going to lay some foundation for why we should obey it. He says, for indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also. We have heard the good news just like they heard the good news. And I listened to one preacher talk about this and he talked about we don't usually have that in our brains when we think about the Old Testament. When we think about the period of time with Moses, we don't usually say, oh yeah, that was full of good news. There was lots of gospel there when when God was dealing with Moses. We don't usually think that way, but it's full of good news. God is not just making threats to his people in the Old Testament. He's making promises to his people. One of them is found in Exodus chapter 34 in verse 7, 6 and 7, when it says, The Lord God passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is in the scene where God is giving the law to Moses. He says, you want to know who I am? I'm not just the lawgiver, and I'm not just the punisher of transgressors. I'm the God who forgives. And he uses the three worst words for sin in the Old Testament when he talks about iniquity, transgression, and sin. God says, you want to know who I am? I'm the one who forgives sin. That's a beautiful thing, right? It's good gospel. It's good news. And so the author of Hebrews says, they heard the good news, and we've heard the good news. But look what he says at the end of verse 2. But the word they heard did not profit them. He's talking there specifically about this wilderness generation, those people who did not believe and perished in the wilderness. He says, the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. This is the key. This is the major problem with the wilderness generation, and this is what we must fear. Merely hearing the good news will not save you. Merely hearing the good news will not profit you. Being near to the truth won't save you. My pastor used to say this when I was growing up. He said it all the time. I thought it was the corniest thing, and now I've come to realize it is absolutely true. He used to say, sitting in church won't make you a Christian any more than sitting in your garage will make you a car. And yet I fear that there are people who treat Christianity that way. If I'm just around enough, if I'm just present enough, that'll make me a Christian. If I just hear, if I grow up in a home where I hear the gospel enough, that will make me a Christian. The author of Hebrews is telling us here that those people heard it. But it didn't profit them because they didn't mix it with faith. They didn't believe. So let's talk a little bit about what faith looks like. Let's talk a little bit about the vocabulary of faith. Wayne Grudem argues pretty convincingly that we need to be careful in our day and age with what word we use to describe biblical faith. In fact, he has a real problem with the word believe in the vernacular. That we use the word believe today in a way that is very unbiblical. In fact, when we use the word believe, oftentimes we are referring to one of two things. First, it usually means either a simple agreement with truth. Do you believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4? I believe it. A lot of times we think about belief that way. It's just mere mental assent and agreement with the truth. Or, worse yet, we use it a different way where we talk about some kind of unlikely, irrational, improbable, pie-in-the-sky hope or faith, right? And at this point, I would have, for all of my life, used Cubs fans as the quintessential example of this. We believe. Cubs fans believe. And now, we can't use that anymore because they actually have a chance, right? Some would say, no? You get the picture there? We use this word belief, and in our vernacular, in our common day language, it means either just simply mental assent or something that we don't really think is going to happen. That's not what the Bible means at all when it talks about belief or faith, right? So Wayne Grudem argues that the better word, the more accurate word for our day is trust. It's trust. That we need to trust God. Our friend from Central Asia talked to us a few weeks ago on the screen, and he talked about the difference between belief and trust. And he used this picture of a bridge. Do any of you remember this? 
He said, if I show you a picture of a bridge that spans a great chasm, and I say, do you believe that bridge? Do you believe that bridge would hold you up? All of us would say, yeah, I believe. I believe what I know of physics, what I know of geometry, what I know of the laws of nature. I believe that bridge would hold me up. But that doesn't mean you trust the bridge, right? You only demonstrate trust in the bridge when you walk out on it and trust that it will hold you up. It's one thing to stand here and say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that only he can provide forgiveness. I believe that only he can reconcile me to the Father. I believe that. It's one thing to stand here and say, yeah, those things are true. It's a radically different thing to walk out on him and trust him for your salvation. To rest all your weight on him is a totally different thing, and that's what biblical faith looks like. And I don't know if you remember it or noticed it, but when our little friend from Central Asia was talking to us about his conversion experience before he got baptized, do you remember this? He said, he said essentially, I have always believed, but I just now came to trust in Jesus. I have always known the truth. In, in other words, I've always known the truth about Jesus because my parents have always taught me about Jesus. From his littlest days, he could say, God loves me. Jesus died for my sins. He knew those things to be true. But he said what made the difference in his life was that it was no longer simple belief, but it was radical trust. And that's what we want to see. And and listen to me. You might be in that boat today. Maybe this word is for you today because you have, for 60 years, been coming to church and saying, I see the bridge, and I believe the bridge would hold somebody up. And I believe the bridge is the only way to get to the other side. And I don't doubt that for a second. But you're standing on the ground. Still. And my invitation to you, and I believe this text's invitation to you, is to walk out on the bridge. Live a life of trust. And not just knowledge of Jesus Christ. So, we want to talk about the difference between uh, believing and trusting. And we have heard... Several times as we've talked through this portion of Hebrews, a reference to the parable of soils as we've looked at this warning. And I think I want to go back there again and notice something particular in that parable that Jesus tells. You remember this story, right? Jesus is talking to a group of people about what the kingdom of God is like. And he tells this crazy story. No, 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 don't do it yet. Let me tell the story first. They give away the punchline, Doug. I appreciate you being on the ball, though. <laughs> so Jesus is talking to a group of people about the kingdom of God. He tells them this story. He says, a sower went out to sow some seed. Remember this? And as he was sowing the seed, some of it fell on the road. And the birds came and took it away. Before it could even grow at all, the birds came and took it away. And some of that seed fell in the rocks. And the seed that fell in the rocks, it immediately sprang up to life. But when the sun came out, it didn't have any roots, and it scorched, and it died. And some of that seed fell amongst the thorns. And it immediately sprung up to life and started to grow. And we could see a little bit of growth. But then the thorns came and they choked it out. It couldn't get any nourishment. And it choked it out. And that seed eventually died. But some of this seed fell on the good soil. And the seed that fell on the good soil, it grew up and produced a harvest. 60, 30, 100 times as much as it was in the beginning. Jesus told that story and everybody started to lean in a little bit because they knew the kind of stuff he was talking about. He wasn't talking about something that was unfamiliar to them. He was talking about the stuff they do every day. They were seed sowers. And so they listened to his story and then, and then he explained it to them. He said, this is what the story is about. Now, Doug, this is what he says. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. This is what I want you to pay careful attention to. What's the difference? What's the difference here? All of these seeds, all of these people represented by the seeds, heard the word. All of them heard it. And that's what the author of Hebrews is teaching us. They, the wilderness generation that perished, they heard it, but they didn't mix it with faith, and so they didn't enter the promised land. And see if that same theme is right here. The parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Believe in the biblical sense, not in the worldly sense. Then he says, and the ones on the rock are those, when they heard the word, they heard it. They received it with joy, but 
These have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and their fruit does not mature. You catch that? This is the pattern I see in Jesus' explanation of the story. They heard, but. They heard, but. They heard, but. And then there's this fourth group. And it doesn't go like that for the fourth group. It goes more like this. They heard and. You see, but changes everything in a sentence. And continues it. So read the rest of it. It says, um, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold fast to it in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. My fear for my own self and for this congregation is that many of our stories go, they heard, but... They heard. And you're privileged to be able to hear because there are billions of people who don't even have that privilege. They heard, but. And after that, there's no fruit born. I want us, I want to be, I want my story to go like this. He heard, and. And fruit was produced. Real faith. Real belief. Real trust was demonstrated in a life radically changed by Jesus Christ. So what's the difference? What's the difference there? It's whether you hear it's not whether you hear it or not, it's whether you hear it and mix it with faith. Notice what the text says. They heard, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. John Piper says it like this. I think this will be on the screen. The main point is Fear this happening to you. Fear hearing the promises of God and not trusting them. Because the same thing will happen to us as happened to them. We will not enter into God's rest, God's heaven, if we do not trust His promises. I love that. We will not enter into His promised rest if we do not trust His promises. So fear not trusting His promises. This is a real fear that we all need to have. But when we talk about fear, we need to talk about it in three different ways. When we examine this kind of fear that the author is encouraging us toward, he's commanding us toward, we need to understand that not all fear is the same kind of fear. Matt Chandler is helpful with this when he talks about three kinds of fear that we know and experience. Three kinds of fear that we know and experience. One, he calls fun fear. Fun fear is like... uh, Adrenaline junkie fear and haunted house fear. Now, I'm a big fan of the adrenaline junkie fear. In fact, I will tell you a story someday about the day I jumped out of a burning airplane uh, with no parachute. I'll tell you, it's a true story, and I'll tell you that story someday. But I do not want to go to a haunted house with you, ever. And I do not want to watch a scary movie with you. Because while I think that jumping out of an airplane is fun, I don't see anything fun about scary movies or haunted houses. And I'm not saying that from a like, hyper-spiritual, super-conservative perspective. I just am a fraidy cat when, when it comes to stuff like that. This is honest truth. But we know what fun fear is like, right? You, we're in that season right now. Some of you may have gone to some kind of haunted house last night and thought it was great fun. There is a fun kind of fear, but that's not what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. And there is also, secondly, a paralyzing kind of fear. This is the kind of irrational, debilitating, crippling kind of fear. And as I was thinking through what would be, a, what would be an example of that in our lives today, I was thinking about clowns. I was thinking about people who have this irrational fear of clowns, and then I turn on the news, and all of a sudden it's not an irrational fear anymore. Right? There are crazy people walking around like clowns, and you should be afraid of them. But you know, you know what it's like to have some kind of irrational fear. Somebody who who maybe just totally is crippled when they're in a crowd. And they they just can't walk around because of this fear of the crowd. Or maybe somebody that's afraid of heights. I told you a story not too long ago about being in the Grand Canyon with a friend of ours who literally couldn't take another step. He was just locked up with fear and couldn't take another step. We know about that debilitating, paralyzing kind of fear, don't we? That's not what the author of Hebrews is talking about here either. 
He's not saying that the Christian life should be this on the edge of your seat, adrenaline junkie fear. Neither is he saying that the Christian life should be this paralyzed, locked up fear that we won't go to heaven. Rather, he's talking about a healthy, life-saving kind of fear that drives us to responsible and careful action. Maybe the example of the kind of fear he's talking about here is the fear that a mountain climber has when he checks and double-checks his gear because he doesn't want it to fail and he fall to the ground to his death. He's going to climb the mountain, but he wants to be careful and that, let that fear drive him to careful action. Or maybe this, this is like the fear of a soldier who doesn't dig a hole and hide in it but a soldier who is on the lookout all the time, constantly ready, constantly sober, his listening, his ears are open, his eyes are open, and he is ready for action. That's the kind of fear we're talking about here in Hebrews. Or maybe it's like a, a boxer, a boxer who comes out of his corner with his hands up because he knows he's in a fight and he's ready for it. Does he like getting hit? No, nobody likes to get hit. But does that keep him from fighting? Absolutely not. He's going to move forward cautiously. Or maybe it's like any fear that provokes us to some kind of careful action. This is the kind of fear that the author is urging us to have. This life-saving fear. This fear that would keep us from danger and harm and destruction ultimately. Okay? So, Piper says the main point is fear in that way, this happening to you. Fear that you would hear the promises of God and not trust them. Because we will not into the promised rest if we do not trust his promises. All right? Then look on in the text in verse 3. Verses 3 to 8 uh, lay out this uh, uh, kind of a, an elaboration on the concept of rest throughout the Old Testament. So basically what he does is first he lays out the principle when he says, we who have believed enter that rest. There he is linking the believing and trusting to the resting. And he's making a promise of rest that remains. And maybe what we see here is a little bit of the already perspective of the rest. We who have believed enter, do enter, not necessarily will enter, but do enter that rest here and now. Then the author begins a contrast with the wilderness generation. He says, we believe and enter, but they did not believe and therefore, they did not enter. Then, the author takes us all the way back to the first example of rest at the beginning of the Bible, at the end of creation, when God himself rested from his work. And what I want you to see there is that God did indeed finish his creative work. After the sixth day, his creative work was finished, and he rested from that work. But he didn't stop all of his work, did he? No, he continues forever and ever his sustaining work. So he takes us back to the first example of rest in God's rest, Sabbath rest, and then he goes back to the negative example of the wilderness generation. He says, God had rest when he finished his work, but the wilderness generation didn't have any rest because of their unbelief. Then from the wilderness, he jumps forward to David, a period of time much later than the wilderness, about 300 years later, during the time of David, when he cites Psalm 95. And basically what he's saying here is that David is still talking about rest. 300 years after the children of Israel entered the promised land, somebody is still talking about rest as if it is in the future, as if it is something that has not been fulfilled. So clearly, clearly the ultimate rest that the author of Hebrews is talking about here is not seventh-day Sabbath rest. Clearly, he's not here talking about promised land, historical rest, and he's not even talking about the rest that happens when you've got a good king on a throne with a sword and there's prosperity during the time of David. He's saying the rest that belongs to the people of God is better than all of these kind of rests that have been experienced so far. In other words, the rest that Jesus provides is better than the rest that Moses provides or Joshua provides or David provides. The rest that Jesus provides is superior to all other rest. In fact, there's a really cool thing in the text, and I won't spend a lot of time on this, um, but when he talks about if Joshua, if Joshua had given them rest, this is verse 8, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Here's what I want you to see quickly, is that the, the, the Hebrew name Joshua 
If you were to take Jesus from the New Testament and translate it backward into the Old Testament, it would be Joshua. Jesus' name is essentially Joshua in, in, a, in a different form, right? And so one scholar I read, this blew my mind. He said, Joshua, the son of Nun, back in the Old Testament, he couldn't really provide the people of God rest. But Joshua, son of God, Jesus Christ, he provides people rest that they've always been looking for. So the author of Hebrews from verses 3 to 8 lays out this um, explanation of the superior rest that Jesus provides by his grace. And then he makes a promise in verse 9. Listen to it. He says, so there remains, still to this day, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What a promise that is. There remains a rest even now for the people of God. It still remains. So the question is, who are the people of God that enjoy this rest? And some people would say, well, the people of God are those who are physically descended from Abraham. The people of God are folks who can trace their lineage back to Abraham and have Jewish blood running through their veins. Those are the people of God. Well, we know that that's not true, right? We know because we studied Hebrews, we studied Hebrews that the people of God are not those who have the blood of Abraham, but those who have the faith of Abraham, right? Those who have the trust that Abraham had in the promises of God. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and the people of God are those who are His because they believe in Jesus Christ. They trust in Jesus Christ and are therefore part of His family, which is what the author of Hebrews has been telling us all along, right? Look at chapter 3, verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We are his house, this is in verse uh, 6. We are his house if we hold fast the confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. How do we become part of the people of God? By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And if we are part of his people, there is a promise of rest for us. And Jesus, in the Gospels, invites people into that rest. In a very famous portion of scripture, in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28, Jesus says this to the crowd. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You hear Jesus offering that kind of rest, promising that kind of rest to those who would come to him? those who would believe in him, those who would trust in him, he says, I will give you rest. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And we don't find it in Joshua, and we don't find it in Moses, and we don't find it in David. We only find it in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. He says, For one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. This is the second imperative. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the example of disobedience. How about that for a paradox? Brad mentioned oxymoron a little while ago when he talked about large group, small group, Bible study. Um, This is not an oxymoron. These are not two things that contradict each other. These are two concepts that are in tension with each other, but move forward together. When he says, be diligent, strive, work hard to enter the rest. Work hard to enter the rest. That's been the application for us all along. That we should do the exact opposite of drifting away, like we saw in chapter 2. In chapter 2, people were drifting away. Why? Because of neglect, because they weren't paying attention, because they weren't being diligent, because they weren't striving. And as they did nothing, they floated further and further away from God. So this is the exact opposite of that. He says, be diligent, strive, work hard, sweat, so that you will not miss out, so that you will not fall, so that you will, in the end, enter that promised rest. Now, not saying we work our way toward it, but if there is not some working that is evidence of our justification, if there is not some working that is proof of our conversion, then our conversion comes into question. In other words, where there is true conversion, there will be a life-changing energy, demonstration, work, 
and effort that is empowered by the Spirit of God. Let me read you how Piper says it. Do you see the great lesson here? The Christian life is a life of day-by-day, hour-by-hour trust in the promises of God to help us and to guide us and take care of us and forgive us and bring us into a future of holiness and joy that will satisfy our hearts infinitely more than if we forsake Him and put our trust in ourselves or in the promises of this world. And day-by-day, hour-by-hour trust in God's promises is not automatic. Day-by-day, hour-by-hour trust in God's promises is not automatic. It is the result of daily diligence, and it is the result of proper fear. That's where we're trying to go with this. Daily diligence, proper fear. Ray Brown says it like this. I think this will be on the screen. It is a strenuous, costly business to be a Christian. Believers must strive to enter the rest of the people of God. The word that is used describes intense concentration of energy necessary to reach a desired goal. It demands everything we've got. Costly business. It demands everything we've got. But listen to him balance here. Listen to him balance this with the indwelling spirit. He says it requires everything we've got, but always with a clear recognition that every virtue we possess, every victory won, and every thought of holiness are his alone. So this is what we're calling you to. Spirit-powered work. Diligence. Striving. That is not done on your own, but by the Spirit that dwells inside of you and with the help of the very presence of God. Tom Schreiner says it this way. Believers, and the author includes himself here with the first person plural, should be diligent to enter the rest. They must not take God's promises for granted as if they could inherit the rest even while straying from the message of Jesus Christ. I think that is the condition of a lot of church members today. Clinging to the promises while straying from Christ. And that doesn't make sense when you read the Bible. There doesn't seem to be a category for those who will inherit the promises while straying from Christ. I know there were some preachers that taught that years and years ago. I don't think in this church, but all around America, that you could be some kind of carnal Christian who has fire insurance, but no life evidence of conversion and will still go to heaven. That is a fabrication from men's minds or worse, from the pit of hell. You don't get that from the Bible. The idea of carnal Christianity cannot be found in the Scriptures. Does this mean that we'll live perfect lives? Absolutely not. But we will have a desire to. And there will be a striving in our lives if we truly belong to him. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that none will fall, following the same example of disobedience. So here's the application for two different groups today. Number one, if you are trusting in Christ, if that describes you, if you are trusting in Christ, if you are a Christian, then go on trusting in Christ. Don't stop trusting in Christ. Don't give up. Don't run away. Don't walk away. But rather walk with Him day by day. Strive. Strive to enter the rest and fear that any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Fear falling short and be diligent to enter the rest. For Christians, that's the application. Fear falling short, not in a crippling way and not in a fun, exciting way, but in a way that drives us to action. Fear falling short and strive. Not in this independence, all work for it mentality, but empowered by the Spirit. With the help of God, strive to enter that rest. Secondly, if you're not trusting in Christ, if that's you today, if you're like like a lot of people and you're standing on the edge and you're saying, I see the bridge and I believe the bridge would hold me, but you failed to step out on the bridge, my invitation to you is to step out onto the bridge today. To start trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation. The scripture says here that there remains a rest for the people of God. And there is only one way to become one of the people of God. There is only one door to this great salvation. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ. But the good news is, that one door, that one way, is open today. It's not like it's a closed, locked up, secret code door 
The one door for salvation is an open door, and the invitation from Jesus is, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's almost as if he says, Walk out on the bridge, and I will hold you. Trust me, and I will save you. So that's my invitation to you. Trust him. Trust him. He's the one who died for your sins and rose again. He's the only one that can rescue you. And he is more than able to do it. And willing to do it. Which should blow our minds. That he would save sinners like us. Let's stand together and pray. God, help us as your people to go on trusting you. To not give up and not run away. But to walk with you every day, God, teach us this kind of healthy, life-saving fear of falling short that spurs us to action. Teach us what it looks like to be diligent to enter that rest, not in our own power, but with your power working in us. God, we, we don't want to fall short. And we do want to enter that rest. So we pray that you'll walk with us every day. And God, we want to pray for people who are not trusting in you, that they would today. That you would meet with them and convict them of their sin and show them their need for a Savior and show them Christ on the cross as that Savior dying in their place as their substitute. I pray that you would teach men and women and boys and girls that there is only one door to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And God, show them that that door is open for them today. Let them hear the voice of Jesus saying, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Help them hear you saying, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. God, I pray that men and women and boys and girls today would respond to the invitation, the offer of the gospel by repenting of their sins and trusting, trusting in Christ for their salvation. And that you, Father, would receive all the glory for that as you rescue souls from hell. In Christ's name we pray, amen.